you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. But what makes a shingle a 40-year shingle, say, as opposed to a 20-year shingle? Let's say one of the obvious elements will be the thickness of the shingle, the thickness of the wearing surface as well. If you compare, if you put them side by side, a basic three-tab shingle that may have a 25-year warranty on it, and you're looking at a 40-year shingle, you're going to find the thickness. Now, also, if you read the technical side of the technical bulletins or information that's on the, the manufacturer's data sheets, you're going to find that the weight of them increased tremendously as you go up in number of years for warranty. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Welcome to another hour with Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, and we are here to try to help answer those questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can follow Ken a couple different ways. You can email him questions at our website, kenthecontractor.com. You can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Or if you do have a question, you can give us a call. Our contact number is 800-614-2975. Unfortunately, many of you listening to us right now are trying to recover from some flood damage in your areas. We've had so much flooding in the Midwestern part of the country and unfortunately, too, that will continue up and down the Mississippi and other areas as we look at snow melt from the winter. And we want to spend a few moments talking about restoration. How do you reclaim your home after it's been inundated by water? And this isn't ne- doesn't necessarily mean it's just water that's in the house, but it could be water that got under the house, not in it, and how it may impact your foundation and your structure. There's a lot more to restoring or rebuilding a home after floodwaters and for that matter, after fire and smoke damage, than just ordinary construction. And sometimes contractors that do a wonderful job at new construction are not right for this other type of work. And so water damage restoration by itself is quite unique. In that case, in some cases, you're not only trying to restore with new product, but you're having to look at the systems that were there and determine how extensive they may have been uh, damaged by the water, whether they have to be replaced. And that may mean something as simple as wiring that's in a junction box uh, underneath the house or in a wall cavity uh, that has to be, it should have a cover plate on it, but has to be accessed. So we have to look at every single aspect of the home that has been exposed to any type of rising water. Now, there are different types of flood damage. In some cases, we've got clean water damage. That says you've had a plumbing leak inside. It's flooded the floor, gone into the basement. You've got warped hardwood floor. That is completely different than rising water that's going to have contaminants in it. And that's where we get into something that's rather unique. You have rivers that rise. When they do, they bring raw sewage that comes up out of septic systems sometimes, They out of the uh, the underground sanitary sewer lines. You may have contaminants from gas, from diesel, from pesticides, other things in the community. And that doesn't just move away when the water recedes, folks. Those items, unfortunately, are left in the structure, under the flooring, in the walls of the home. And many of you have been through this before, and I think you get it. Some have not. The idea is to refresh everybody with some basic steps and some things you need to do to stay safe long-term because it's not just about the cosmetics. It's about your health and the environment of that home when it's all said and done. So the first thing that's very obvious to all of you, if you've got a flood issue, you want to call the insurance folks. And if you, But if you don't have flood insurance, most of you are going to find your homeowner's insurance does not pay and you are on your own. And if you're going to start looking at this on your own, I want you to do the first thing you should, and that is turn the power off. If the power company has not shut the power off to your house, you want to be sure that the main is, call them, have them turn the power off. 
because water standing inside the junction boxes, conduits, any of those areas can create electrical shorts. They can ground out. People can become electrocuted. Fires can be started. Turn the power off. And then you run through a complete checklist. And I'm not going to go through all this in any great detail, but I want to touch on some basics and some things that are pretty important to you. Clearly, you want to get the water out of the home as quickly as possible. And that may mean you're opening doors, you're opening windows, you're doing everything you can to ventilate that house. If you've got to bring generators in, put fans in, you want to do that as well. You want to pull everything out that can harbor water, furniture, carpeting, underlayment, any of those things that can be readily removed, cabinets. That's why after floods we're used to seeing all these things sitting on the side of the road, get them out of the house. You're going to have to get it down to the bare bones and dry that out. The other thing that I noticed some people don't do, and I've had people say they really regret this later, is they don't go in and they peel off, they do not peel off the drywall or wall board that forms their walls and say, hey, it's dry, it looks good, I can seal it, I can repaint it. But whether you have insulation in the wall or not is immaterial on the inside. By closing that up and not allowing it to ventilate and dry properly, you're harboring what you need to create mold and mildew. And those mold spores, once they're formed, they're going to stay there for an indefinite period of time. In my experience, you need to pull the wall board off. You need to dry the studs. You need to dry every aspect of it before you start doing the rebuilding. If you're going to get back to where things are whole again, it's a little bit like making an omelet. You're going to break a few eggs in order to make that omelet. You're going to have to do more destruction, and that's hard for us to realize, but sometimes we're going to have to tear more things out than we see damaged in order to make it whole and where we want it to become again. If you are not qualified to do flood repairs yourself, you clearly need to bring someone else in who is. You need to be talking to a contractor. There are companies throughout our listing area that specialize in this, and that's where I want to drive you is to a specialty contractor. Now, I know it's difficult when you're dealing in an emergency situation, but even if you have to negotiate or work something out with one contractor, there's always enough time to get a few references and to make those phone calls. And emergencies are frequently different than things that we have an opportunity to get a lot of competitive bids on and to sit down and write the scope of work that you hear me talk about. This would be one of those exceptions. But to me, there's still never an exception for checking out the credentials of someone that you're hiring to work for you. Are they licensed? Are they insured? Does your state require them to be bonded? And you want not just to ask the question, you want copies of those certificates of insurance and you want to verify these things. You want to know if they're a specialty contractor in stormwater restoration, that they have the appropriate license for that. You also want to ask what kind of team they're going to bring to the table to work for you. Is it just a contractor doing the work? Are they involved with people that are specialists in removing or cleaning up the the contaminants that I just talked about? Again, you may have gasoline, diesel, pesticides, so many other things that are now inside your wall space, within your floor cavity, not just in things you're going to peel off and throw away. So you want to know that they can create an environment when it's all said and done that makes you whole again, meaning that you can go back to living in comfort in your home and you don't have to worry about the air that you're breathing with all of these items being airborne and making you sick over time. The real bottom line to this is you're suffering. I recognize that. If you've got damage inside, though, you don't want to suffer long-term. You want to make it whole as quick as possible. You want to go back to breathing proper air. Now, I also want you to think a little bit about structural issues. You're saying, Ken, we've had flood. Water's come up above the river. Didn't get in the house. We're on a crawl space. Maybe you're on a basement. doesn't really matter. You may not see damage right after the water recedes. And if this is not something that you're comfortable with doing, 
If your neighbors or other people around you especially have noticed cracks in the wall and you haven't at this point, you may want to engage a local architect or structural engineer to examine your facility, your home, and be sure that you're not going to have any signs of this developing three, four, five, six weeks, several months, in fact, after the fact. Because as water rises, especially if it's moving along that house, it's not fairly stagnant, it's got quite a flow to it or a current, it has the opportunity to get in under the foundations and to weaken that, and you may not see anything right now. It may take it a few months for that to drop down and settle, but long term you could have some very serious problems. And if you've got insurance... Flood insurance especially, they will be looking for these things. But I just wanted to give you a few things for you to think about. We certainly, our thoughts and prayers are with all of you that are suffering from flood issues and damage right now. And we want you to get your house whole as soon as possible, but we want you to be safe. Kevin Happ in just minutes on this hour of Ken the Contractor in the news. And also, Green Building, that's just moments away. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Our phone lines are open. Do you have a question for Ken? The number to dial is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Well, we can help you. John is going to get ready to join us right now. He's got some water in the basement that he needs some help with. John, hi. You're on the air with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Hello, Ken. How you doing? Good. Good to hear from you, John. How can I help you? I have a house that's a little over 100 years old, and the basement's five and a half feet deep in a uh, dirt hand-dug basement. Okay. And when it rains, the water comes in, and I have a sump pump in it. But I was wanting to dig it on down to, you know, seven or eight feet and put some gravel in and, and pour some cement floor in. And with the water, I found out when I started digging a little deeper that the water comes in pretty much all the time, not real fast, but... Uh, with that being the situation, I didn't know if I was running, would, you know, running any future problems. If I just need to set it up so that some pump continues to pump out from underneath it, or is, is, exactly it, is it safe for me to assume that this basement is fully below grade, meaning it's it's not uh, it was not constructed as a walkout basement where the the current floor level, that five foot level, uh, walks out to grade on one side? It's below grade, yes. Okay, all four sides are completely below grade. Yes. And the foundation walls, are they deep enough below the current dirt floor? Are you going to have to form and pour and extend uh, structure below that? If well, you... I'm not going to go underneath the wall itself, but I am going to put a new wall up along the inside. Okay. And then I'll pour some cement along the top, make a little shelf all the way around for canned goods. All right, because there are different methods. Many people have done exactly what you want to do and some underpin it and actually put walls underneath what's there, pour footings. Others are doing what you're suggesting you will do, and that's pour a wall within that wall and excavate down deeper. And that should give you an opportunity to install a foundation drain, but the fact that you don't have any wall above grade says you're still going to have to rely on that pump, which can be a negative because when you have a power outage, the pump's not going to work. Even if you've got a battery backup, which I always recommend in your case, that that battery is only going to last for so many hours if you have an outage for extended number of days. Is there an opportunity for you to get a drain line from this basement, say further out, even if it's a hundred feet away, to excavate and take it down where it will the gravity drain will will drain at some point on your property? Do that would to get permission to go across at least two other, the minimum two other properties. Without that, it really sounds like you're stuck having to rely on a sump pump. Is that right? That's right, and I didn't know. Uh, uh, what the negatives were, so that's why I'm just calling to get some input. Yeah, and I think those are really your only options because you you have a bowl, and within your property lines, you're not able to get below the bottom of that bowl, that floor level, 
as it exists today or extending it down. Now, if you've got neighbors, if you've got an easement along the side lot lines and you can install that and you can talk to your neighbors, to me that would be the best way to go. I'd always prefer to see a basement installed with a gravity drain. And, again, you can do this now since you're going to install walls within those walls. You could place that on top of the footings. It would be below your floor and drain by gravity. But even if you can't drain it by gravity, I still would encourage you to put a foundation drain in around the perimeter of your new wall, take that to a deeper sump, and you may want to do it in more than one location, perhaps have two, have some degree of redundancy, and to pull that groundwater out. But you, you certainly, it sounds like you have found that groundwater, that ground table water level if you've only dug down another foot or so and it's wet almost all the time. Uh, yeah. I think you have a little ground. bit, a little bit of a challenge ahead of you, but you certainly can deal with it as long as you're willing to accept the fact that there may be times that you have no power and a battery backup doesn't work and you're just going to have water in your basement. Uh, yeah, I figured it'd probably be times like that, but I didn't know, you know, if that would pose any other dangers too, you know, but. I thought I'd see what you had to say. No, I think you'd be good. I've, I've known plenty of people. In fact, I've worked in commercial buildings over the years where that has taken place in some of our very old historic structures, and crawl spaces became full basement areas. But as long as you deal with it, if you're prepared for it, it, then it's not the surprise that it is for folks that say, I never thought I'd have water in my basement. I stored all these things down there. My electronics are ruined. So as long as you can deal with it, then my hat's off to you. You create some cheap storage space. But the best thing I think you can do is try and get a gravity drain. And if you think you can get it across the neighbor's property with their permission, do it in writing. Don't just do it on a handshake or a verbal basis because if they sell the property and they've granted you an easement, there would be no record and then somebody could cause you to come back and take that out. I don't think that would be possible at this time, but uh, something I have been thinking about. But um, Well, we appreciate you listening, and I hope that offers a little direction. If nothing else, maybe it reinforces your thinking. All right, thank you. John, thank you. And don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. And Richard has done just that, coming to us from South Bend, Indiana. And Richard tells us he listens to us on WTRC 95.3 FM in South Bend. And we appreciate you listening and tuning in, Richard. You tell me here, as a spring project, my wife and I are going to finish out part of our basement. You're going to make it into a game room. Said we want to make the finished drywall in the room corner somewhat rounded, not square. And it sounds like you're uh, pretty handy because you tell me that you can do most of the drywall work yourself, but you don't have a clue on how to get those corners rounded. Well, frankly, it's fairly simple. It's like a lot of other things. When you know the secret or you know where to buy the product, it's uh, an easy task at that time, but it may not seem it up front. First, in terms of the walls or the stud work or the framing, you're still using standard frame materials. You will have to cut the top and bottom plates into a radius based on whatever uh, you're looking for, how tight that is. And my suggestion is you make this uh, not too tight. It's extremely difficult then if you're making just a slight corner quite tight, but you want to have a pretty broad radius on that to give it a rounded look. Anyway, you can cut the top and bottom plates from plywood, but if you're using plywood for the base plate, you want to be sure it's not in direct contact with the uh, the, the concrete. You want to put felt or some separation below that. If the radius is not so broad that you cannot cut it, uh, uh, you don't have to use plywood. You may find you can simply use a 2 by 12 and scry- cut, lay it out and then cut that so that you have proper materials, pressure-treated materials, contacting the floor. But the real issue you have is on the drywall. I did want to touch a little bit for others listening to us on how you make a rounded wall. But when it comes to the drywall, 
Again, if this radius is not too tight, you will find that you can use quarter-inch thick drywall in at least two layers. That will equal your typical half-inch finish. Now, most folks don't know that you can buy quarter-inch drywall. You're not going to find it in stock in most places. If you happen to be in big city areas, you might find one wholesale house that stocks a little bit of the quarter-inch material. But quarter-inch drywall will work quite well in two layers on a fairly broad radius to get that nice curved look in the wall, and then you simply finish that with your regular drywall compound and tape like you do the rest of your wall material. If that's not available to you, even on a special order where you you happen to be listening to us, you can use half-inch drywall, and you want to take just the section you need out to out on this radius. You want to cut that drywall board, and you want to soak that drywall. You actually want to wet that drywall. And it may take you a a full day or so, but you get this wet enough, it will gradually curve. You're going to have to have a fair amount of moisture in it and then be able to place it on the wall. Now, you could also start, you can help by scoring the back of that material as well. And there are one or two companies that I've run into that will will actually sell or produce a flex drywall material as well. And I say that because you're not going to find this at your big box stores or your typical supply houses. This would be specialty product. So there are several options that you have. Ask your wholesale houses about the various options I'm talking about, but at the very least, you can use standard material, standard half-inch drywall. You can score the back of it. That's another way to do it, and put it on the walls and then finish it smooth to make that curve on the inside. A lot of options. Good luck to you with your basement build-out. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Our website is KenTheContractor.com. We'll take a quick break. Be right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back, and you're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. I'm Jabrit along with Ken, and it's time for this week's segment of In the News Weekly. Ken brings products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. Ken, going to talk about something that uh, we monitor quite often on this program, and that is uh, the housing market and its current status. Well, it's rare that I get to say I told you so, but we've been talking about this for a number of months now in terms of the housing market and when it comes back and it's going to come back strong in certain places, going to be a little little longer to get strong in other places, and that's what we're seeing. The latest FNC residential price index, which is an index created by the mortgage industry, so we're seeing not just a snapshot of one company, but we're seeing this across the country. It was created by the mortgage industry, has recorded a 20 28-month high for home prices, and this was just released. The index increased 6.1%, which is the fastest rate its growth has been re- has been recorded since July of 2006. Now, folks, that is a long period of time. This is a very substantial change in housing markets, housing sales. The index shows the strongest price momentum is occurring in some places that, remember, were hit among the hardest, Phoenix of all places. And uh, they really struggled for a long period of time during the recession. Now, many of the hardest-hit markets during the housing crash are showing signs of the strongest comebacks. And that's not without, you know, most of us saying that's bound to be what we expect to see. Places like Phoenix, Vegas, Detroit, San Francisco, Denver, San Diego, and Sacramento are all extremely high when you look at price increases. That's what we're talking about, the price increase. We're seeing that in Phoenix at 29.3% increase 
over this time last year. Major changes. So those of you that are sitting on a home that's been upside down, if you're in any of these markets and you're in many of the top markets around the country, hang on because relief is coming. The price of your house is escalating, and for some of you at a much more rapid pace than you could imagine. Also, what we're seeing that's helping this in some cases, we're seeing investors move back into the housing market. Uh, bonds and other things are so cheap right now, they're starting to see better returns on investment in real estate. And Realty Track has released a study that reveals some of their top markets that investors are picking homes up in, places like uh, Memphis, Toledo, Ocala, Florida. Again, Vegas is part of the movement there, Palm Beach, Florida, and Deltona. A lot of Florida properties are moving now. They have been in the deep, deep uh, recession as far as housing prices go and completely upside down. So I suggest to you, hang in there. If you're upside down, it's getting better. And for those of you that are looking to buy homes, I keep reminding you of this as we see Fewer homes in inventory. We see more of them being picked up by investors and others. You're going to find those prices continue to go up. Fewer options on the market. It's all going to be inflationary over time. Gradually, we're going to see this in new home construction as well. So if you're in the market, you're thinking about it, pay attention. Stat I read this past week in the very hot. I think probably if we, we look at the two hottest housing markets in the country, they tend to be San Francisco and in and around the nation's capital, in and around D.C., they have already gone back, and they're above the levels before things leveled off and crashed in 2008. Yeah, in many areas around D.C., that's the case, and realtors, uh, some that I've talked with, are telling me that prices are now being bid up, which is what we saw in 02, 03, 04 before the crash, and that's location, supply and demand, location. Yet there are other areas in the greater D.C. metropolitan area where prices are going up, but they haven't reached the levels that they were before the crash. So you have to pay attention to your neighborhood, to your city and where you are, but hang in there. Things are coming. They're getting better. All right, let's go back uh, to the phones. Once again, we mentioned you can leave your questions for Ken at our contact number, 800-614-2975. And Hank did. He's got a question about something that we get a lot of calls and emails about, tankless hot water heaters. Here's his question. I have a question about your uh, water heaters and the tankless water heaters specifically. Uh, Wondering um, uh, what the merits are of those uh, as far as cost, maintenance, and so forth, relative to a tank one, which I see uh, has something as a reference to anodes with my tank one. Anyway, um, I'd be uh, glad to hear from you on that. Thanks. Bye. Hank, you raise a good question. A lot of people these days are moving away from that energy eater, that fixed water heater that constantly consumes either electricity uh, or gas. And even though today in gas they no longer have standing pilot lights, they're electronic in many cases, and, and things come on instantly, the point is there are ways that we can become more energy efficient. And if you happen to have an old traditional water heater that's electric in your home, That energy is being consumed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even though the thermostats will come off and on, there are times that electricity is not being pulled through the system, but that is not the majority of the time. Tankless water heaters have really made a splash in the market in the last number of years because of the technology improvements. But I want to remind you that the problem that we hear from time to time when people say they don't perform well is not because of the water heater not doing what it's supposed to. It tends to be because we undersize them. The traditional water heater that's in your house, whether it's a 40-gallon, a 52-gallon, whatever it may be, if it was put in when the house was built, 
Chances are pretty good it was sized by a plumber, by a wholesale house, by an engineer, by a contractor to match the number of plumbing fixtures in that house. You don't put a 10-gallon hot water heater in if you have a three- or four-bedroom home. It just isn't going to cut it. So the water heater gets larger based on the number of plumbing fixtures that need you need to supply hot water too. The same holds true with the tankless water heaters. So you had two questions. First is what are my thoughts on them? My thoughts are, one, they work quite well if you have it sized correctly and it's sized for the way you live in the home and for the number of plumbing fixtures in the house. When it comes to cost, the cost of the unit, in my experience, and I've installed a number of these, will typically be more than a traditional water heater on the front side. But the savings, and there can be a fairly rapid payback depending on how much hot water you consume, but the payback can be pretty rapid because you do not have standing hot water that you're constantly heating and keeping in standby mode. When you install these units, they will produce hot water at a certain temperature. There will be a drop-off, but down to a minimum temperature based on how much you consume. And that's why I say it needs to be sized for your usage and for your home in order to work properly. If it does, you should never have a hot water issue. And if you're gone for two, three days, five days, you're not spending a penny for hot water through a tankless system. And you don't have all the problems you talk about in the anode rods. You don't have all the problems within the tankless units because there is no standing water. An anode rod is basically a sacrificial rod that's on the inside to attract all the things that wants to cause the inside of your tank to rust. These anode rods can be removed and replaced. You don't have the same situation with a tankless unit, again, because there is no standing water. So my recommendation is do a little more research on it, but if you're really excited about it, I'd make the change. Are we going to see those put in as the predominant standard unit, or are we still way away from that? I don't think the price point is there yet. As I said, these units are higher priced than traditional hot water. Where we are seeing them become quite popular would be in multifamily homes, apartments, places limited on space, or where now instead of dedicating a closet to a full 40-gallon water heater, for example, you can put this high in the closet. You still have the floor space and shelves below that. So we're seeing more confined spaces move to these. I think over time we'll find that in most cases this will replace the traditional hot water heater, but that price point is going to have to come down some. If you've got a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or forward your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question about your home inside or out? Give Ken a call. 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or if you're shy and don't want to be on the radio, you can email us a question. That's right. KenTheContractor.com. And let's start with an email question right now, Ken. And it uh, comes to us uh, from uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, this is Joseph, who's got a problem with some stucco. And Joseph, we appreciate you listening to us on WEEU, 8.30 a.m. out of Reading. And we're sorry you've got a problem, but let's see if we can point you in the right direction. You say, I've got stucco over a wire lath over cinder block walls on the lower part of your bi-level home. And this one's interesting. For those, all of you now that have a stucco or an EFAS-type product, but especially stucco on your house, pay attention to this question. said, I also have a covered patio. The stucco's flaking off. White powdery substance is leaching through, and the wall looks damps, damp under the patio roof where the rain can't get to it. So 
He has an issue with that. What is the problem and where do I go? Well, first, let me tell you that, Joseph, I think you have identified the problem. Clearly, you have moisture getting between the block wall and the stucco. And having not seen this, the signs of that to me are this white powdery substance that you're talking about. And many of you that have stucco on your homes or even brick or block, if you see a white powdery residue working its way through the surface as the material dries, those are the natural minerals that are in the, the cement and maybe in the clays and other materials that are used in stucco and mortar and block. And as that dries, it comes to the surface. It's, a, it's called efflorescence, and it creates a white powdery uh, material that in most cases you can wipe off. So what you're seeing here is a result of the moisture getting behind the stucco. It's coming through. It's drying. These minerals are leaving this white powdery residue, and eventually that stucco will, will separate from the lath or separate from the wall itself. The fact that you tell me this is occurring underneath the patio awning indicates to me that you have a couple of possibilities. One, if you happen to have a windowsill immediately above that, that sill could be leaking, allowing water to get in and then coming down that wall. But you haven't described that. Uh, two, if the stucco runs all the way to the corner and this patio runs to the corner and it's not sealed at that point, let's assume it makes a transition to brick or other materials, water could be getting in there. But where I think your issue is is probably the attachment of the awning to the wall since you really describe this as occurring below that. And on a temporary basis, you certainly need to pay attention to uh, the caulking or fasteners or the channel that the awning is secured to and then bolted into the wall to see if that needs to be caulked or weatherproofed. I would recommend you bring a professional out. You go on in your email to say you're looking to do that, but you want to know what your short-term measures are. That's where I would start first. The longer you let this go, the bigger this problem will become, the more costly it will be to resolve. Good luck to you in that search, but this is something I think in the short run you can handle yourself. Our app of the week deals with art, and I must say I'm very challenged when it comes to this. Number one, I can't tell you what's good or bad every once in a while, but you've got a uh, an app this week that may uh, – Help your rooms look a little sharper, even if you don't know what you're doing. Well, I'm going to tell you, when it comes to art, I've been told that my taste is in my mouth, so I know absolutely nothing about artwork, and there's some of you rolling over out there now saying, what? And that's a fact. And this is called Decomash, D-E-C-O-M-A-S-H. This is a free app for your iPhone, your iPad, and I found this one rather intriguing. It says, in some cases, you can simply take a picture of your living space with your iPhone camera, and Decomash will find your complimentary artwork that matches your room. Now, let me give you the rest of the information. It goes on to say that if you have a room with decors that they just don't seem to go well together, I'm thinking somewhat that eclectic look. It says Decomash will find your perfect painting that ties everything together. You don't want me to do it. You want something smarter than I will ever be when it comes to artwork. If you just bought new furniture, you simply take a photograph of that in the living space, and then Decobash will find your artwork that will help blend the new furniture into your painted walls and your other surroundings. Now, this utilizes color theories, and I don't understand color theories, let me assure you, but it utilizes color theories and decorating's best practices to analyze photos and search through thousands of artwork. The other thing that it does, and Jim, this would be right up your alley and mine, it says Decobash also is budget conscious. It says when it finds art that has the same matching quality, it will favor the less expensive artwork. Now, that's my speed when it comes to selecting artwork. Inexpensive, looks good, makes everything happen. D-E-C-O-M-A-S-H, and this is a free app. 
You'll find the link on my website, kenthecontractor.com. Very helpful for me because I think the last piece of artwork I bought was that famous Farrah Fawcett poster. Many, many, many <laughs> hey, years ago. dating you too. Yes. So. <laughs> many, many years ago. All right. Uh, Wilson's got problems with his doors. All right, Wilson. And I, I wish you were the only one on earth that had door problems, but it just doesn't work that way. And sometimes as our home ages, uh, those doors that we use most frequently become our biggest nuisance. And Wilson writes to us from Lynchburg and listens to us on WAMV 1420 AM in Lynchburg, Amherst, Virginia. And we appreciate you tuning us in there. Said you've been in your house for about five years, so you're not in a hundred year old home. Said both outside doors are sagging a bit and rubbing against the jam. Now some of you are listening saying, yeah, I've got the same problem here. Said I thought the top hinge was loose and it was. So you backed out the screws, you found that they were very short, and uh, that they only went into the jam. And most of you are saying, well, what's wrong with that? Well, I'm going to tell you here in just a moment. said, both doors get a lot of use, and you're really tired of uh, uh, having to deal with this issue. You've tried some larger screws, but they, they just don't hold. Well, let me tell you how you take care of those things. In the first place, most builders, when they install doors, because you're in a house five years old, will install a, a screw that typically comes with it that not only runs through the hinge but runs all the way into the stud behind that, the structural component. That should prevent most sagging of any door. That should also prevent the jam from racking over time because there's shims that go between the jam and the stud as the nails or screws are put in to hold that jam in place. But the screws that come from manufacturers on the hinges that go into these door jams typically are about three-quarters of an inch in length. They only go into the jam proper, and over time, especially on a high-use door, they do work themselves loose. You tighten them two or three times, and gradually you, you reach the point that the screw no longer grabs or binds in that door frame. And that's the problem. You go to a larger screw, then all of a sudden the head doesn't fit flush inside the hinge because you can go to the next number, a number eight screw uh, or whatever. And that's the issue you have there. So what you need to do is find a screw comparable to the one that many manufacturers will ship with their doors that is the same number, maybe a number six screw. Most of them are, but it may be two inches in length, not three quarters of an inch. Run that screw all the way into that jam. Put your level on the door and the jam. Be sure it's plumbed up, and you'll find it'll move a little bit. All of a sudden, you're going to eliminate that door bind problem. You're going to find that the latch set engages like it should, and that little bit of work solves a lot of problems on that door and frame. So that'll take care of your issue. That's something you can do yourself. Very inexpensive. You might have to go spend 30 cents for a screw, but that's about it. Good luck to you. And, you know, these issues you've pointed out at times, the door issues can be resolved without taking everything apart. I think that's the big fear everybody has. Look at this issue with the door. Now I got to take, you know, the frame, the jam, the, the whole thing apart, and I just don't feel qualified to do that. And I think for a lot of people, and I hope that's partly why we're here and through our email system, it can be very simple. But if you don't understand how things are assembled or where the adjusting screws or positions are, it can be overwhelming. And for a lot of us that may not be into car engines, for, ex- for example, and in, in the car mechanics, Sometimes it's a matter of turning a screw or a valve, but you have to know which one and you have to know where to find it. And doors and hardware and things in our home that require maintenance many times are just like that. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor, the program where folks come for professional answers. If you have a question about your home, you can reach Ken through his website at kenthecontractor.com, or you can always phone your questions to 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor.
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.